Romans 14, start in verse 10. But you, why do you judge your brother? Or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall give praise to God. So then, each one of us will give an account of himself to God. Would you bow with me? Father, we thank you this morning for your word, for the privilege of worshiping according to your word. Your word not only informs our prayers, your word not only serves as the basis of what we will read and what we will say in the worship service, but your word also serves to guide us musically. It's the foundation of what we sing. Everything that we do in worship is centered around this word which you have revealed about yourself so that we might know you and exalt you. And we pray that as we have worshipped this morning, that we have exalted you, honored you, lifted you up as God, King, Sovereign. And now, Father, would you guide and direct us as we think about your word in a very specific way, as we think about the opportunities, the graces, the liberties that you have given us, and that we might handle those in a way that reflects our love of you, and by extension of our love of you, our love for one another. And so would you guide us in understanding these few verses that that even this morning you would bring, bring transformation to our hearts and that being changed on the inside, that our lives would likewise be conformed to what you would desire for us. Guide us, direct us in our understanding of this word, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. There are many things that can destroy the unity of the church. And one of the most effective tools that Satan uses to destroy and disrupt harmony in the body is a hypocritical pride that takes the form of judgmentalism. Whenever we think that we are superior to others in the church body, that we have attained to something that they have not, that we have an understanding that they do not, that we have a privilege that they do not, that we have a right to criticize them for their choices, then we are well on the way to destroying the unity of the church, the harmony of the body, and the church itself. Jesus himself addressed this very early in his ministry when he said this in the Sermon on the Mount. Do not judge so that you will not be judged. For in the way you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye and behold, the log is in your own eye. You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. We refer to the men that Jesus is speaking about in this parable as Mr. Log and Mr. Speck. 
They demonstrate that it is easy to sit in judgment of others while ignoring the condition of our own hearts. And we make such judgments to our own detriment. And not only our own detriment, but the detriment of the entire church body. It is this issue that the Apostle Paul has been persistently addressing in Romans chapter 14. And in these verses that are before us, in verses 10 through 12, he is continuing that exhortation about preserving the unity of the body and helping the body to function well, despite differences in how we will make decisions about the liberties that we enjoy. How can we... How can we joyfully express those liberties and maintain spiritual unity in the church? That's Paul's concern in Romans chapter 14, which we have summarized in this way. Use your individual freedoms as a means of preserving the corporate unity of the body. That is, you have spiritual freedoms, you have privileges, You have things that you can do that will differ from others in the body. You are to enjoy those, but you're to enjoy them in such a way that the unity of the body is preserved and kept. You're never to enjoy them in such a way that harmony in the body is is disrupted. In verses 1 through 9, Paul gave us five instructions for the use of our liberties And now Paul is going to go back to one of the principles that he addressed in verse 4 about judging one another and come up with four reminders to keep us from judgmentalism and hypocrisy. Four reminders to keep us from judgmentalism and hypocrisy. The first of them is found at the beginning of verse 10. And it is simply this, to keep from judgmentalism, remember your position. Remember your position. Throughout this passage, the Apostle Paul has been making a number of declarative statements. So he's, he's making statements about a variety of topics around this issue of liberty. He's talked about uh, decisions that other people will make. So, for instance, in verse 2, he will say, One person has faith that he may eat all things. And so he's just making an observation about what some people do. Again, Verse 5, he does something similar. One, peop- one person regards one day above another. So people have different opinions. He's just making an observation about that. Other times he will, he will make statements about how we are to relate to others who are making different choices. So, for instance, in verse 1, he moves from declaration to imperative. Now accept the one who is weak in faith. So... Our relationship to those who are making different choices is that we ought to be accepting of them. Verses 5 and 6, he talks about how we should make decisions about our own liberties. So, end of verse 5, each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. And so he's making all these declarations that relate to our liberty. In two places, though, in verses 4 and 10... He asks questions. It's the only time in this whole chapter that he asks questions and the questions drill in to us so that we examine our own hearts so that we ask of ourselves what is the condition of our hearts and how are we treating the liberties that God has given us. Notice what he says in verse 10, the very first clause. But you... You, 
Don't think about those who have liberties that they're exercising with what you think is too much freedom. Don't look at those who are not exercising those liberties because they are hesitant and are unconfident of their privilege to do that. Here he focuses in on the individual. You. Who are you? And it's very similar in tone to verse 4, isn't it? Who are you to judge the servant of another? What is your position? Said most cynically, we might say it, just who do you think you are? On what basis have you taken up the position of judge? The fact that he is emphatically saying this, you, is even emphasized as we look at the immediate context. Notice verse 7. Not one of us lives for himself and not one of us dies for himself. If we live, we live for the Lord. If we die, we die for the Lord. Whether we live or we die, we are the Lord's. But you, and then the end of verse 10, for we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. So right in the middle of all these we's and us's, he says, you. And with that, he is very clearly inviting us to examine our own hearts. Terry, who do you think you are? What is your position before the Lord? Who has left you? as judge and jury to execute judgment against others. And notice again that as he has been doing throughout this passage, he is addressing both the weak and the strong with the same phrase. We're going to see this in in just a moment, um, how he particularly is focusing on both people. It's not as if he is saying, but you who are strong, why do you judge? Or you who are weak, why do you judge? He, he is assuming that all have a propensity to judge. And he is asking all to examine their own attitudes. Now, brothers and sisters, this is such a good reminder to us that we are all prone to falling into this trap of judgmentalism. He is not saying... Let's excuse sin and let's overlook sin. Remember, we're talking about liberty issues. We're talking about issues that are not sin. They're just preferences. Somebody likes Burger King. Somebody likes McDonald's. Pastor Keith likes In-N-Out. We all got our preferences. I like grumps. Some people like Cadillacs. Some people like Fords. Some people like Hondas. It's not a sin issue. And so Paul says, why are you judging? Why are you evaluating? In the context about whether or not someone eats meat or not, whether someone eats bacon or not. And the question he asks is even more precise. Notice what he says, verse 10. You, why do you judge your brother? He's probably, with that phrase, addressing the one who is weaker. Notice verse 3. One who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat. And the one who does not eat, the one who does not eat is the one who believes that he doesn't have the liberty to eat foods that were prohibited under the Old Testament law. And he says of that person what he calls the weaker brother, 
The one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats. And I think what he is doing in verse 10 is he's picking up that phrase from verse 3 and saying, if you're a weaker brother, don't judge the one who is stronger, who is eating what you refuse to eat. To judge is, is to evaluate a person's actions and motives. But even worse than evaluating another person's motives, it is, it is to say, I have a position in your life that has been granted to me to stand over top of you and evaluate and consider your heart and your motives. I am, as it were, God in your life. The worst form of judgmentalism is that it usurps the authority of God. One person has defined judgmentalism as a critical and censorious spirit that judges everyone and everything seeking to run others down. It's exactly right. We judge and we tear people down. But it's even worse than that. It is an attempt to run to others down and at the same time exalt myself to a position of authority and dare I say it, even deity. I'm God. Paul asks the second question, not just how can you judge your brother or you again. With that little phrase, or you again, he seems to be intimating that he's talking about another individual Why do you regard your brother with contempt? Again, I think he's going back to what he's just written in verse 3. The one who eats, the one who is strong, the one who says, God has declared, Christ declared all foods clean in Mark chapter 7. In Acts chapter 10, God says, arise, kill, eat. Everything is available to us to eat. The Old Testament law is no longer binding on us. Let's eat. Let's wrap shrimp in bacon and grill it and call it good. And Paul says of him, the one who eats, that's the strong person. He must not regard with contempt the one who does not eat. And I think when he says that same question in verse 10, he's referring to the strong. Strong, why are you? Why are you regarding people with contempt? Why are you looking down on others because you believe that you are superior? Why are you disdaining others? Why are you pridefully contemptuous of others? And with both those questions, we have to understand that whether we eat meat or not, whether we believe it's best to eat meat or not, whether we believe it's best to worship in a particular way according to a particular style on a particular day, we should not criticize, condemn, ridicule, or mock the decisions or actions of others. Remember, brothers, these are not sins. It's not a matter of coming alongside a brother and saying, Hey, I saw your interaction with your wife the other day and I'm a little concerned. Is that the kind of language and tone that you generally use with your wife? Are you angry with her in an unrighteous way? That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about things that are absolute freedom. Do it and you're not sinning. Don't do it and you're not sinning. And we do not have a right to criticize and judge and examine them. We do have A responsibility, though, and the responsibility is to examine our own hearts. Am I judging? Am I being critical? 
Am I cultivating or condoning a critical spirit? And further, not only must I examine myself, I must, remember verse 1, accept the one who is weak in faith. He'll come back to that in chapter 15. Therefore, accept one another. Embrace, welcome, love, fellowship, participate with, be intimate with that one. So to keep from judgmentalism, remember your position. Can I say it most simply? You're not God. You don't have the right to judge, and neither do I. Secondly, to keep from judgmentalism, remember your relationships. Now, as we've looked at this verse, I have intentionally skipped one particular pair of words. But you, why do you judge your... What's the word? Brother. Or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? That word brother is exceedingly common in the New Testament. It's used about 184 times in the epistles. The Apostle Paul uses it 133 times and and repeatedly throughout the book of Romans. It's interesting that as Paul transitions from his heavily theological discourse, the first 11 chapters, into the practical application of what he has laid down in the first 11 chapters, in verse, tw- in, in verse 1 of chapter 12, he uses that word, Therefore, I urge you, brothers, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice. So as he's transitioning to this is how, this is how theology works out in your life, He addresses them immediately as brothers. He's reminding them, you have a brotherly relationship with one another. And that's going to dominate the thinking of these chapters. But what's interesting is that when he starts that way, mentions specifically by name, we're brothers in 12.1. He doesn't use that word again until 14.10. And starting in 1410, he'll allude to our brotherly relationship five times in the rest of this chapter. You think he's making a point? Oh, remember, you're brothers. Now, how many of you have brothers? Okay, like half to two-thirds of you. I have a brother. And I have a good relationship with my brother. Now, those early years, right? There's a little bit of contention at times. A little bit of conflict. That's not what the Apostle is talking about here. He's not talking about brothers that we might get along with or might not get along with. He is thinking about relationship. He's thinking about the fact that we we are not with one another in random, anonymous acquaintances, acquaintances. There's an intimacy and a fellowship with one another. There's a bondedness. We're in the same family. May not have chosen each other. But we're in the family. And family cares for one another. And family loves one another. 
What's interesting is that as he thinks about family relationships, he doesn't say father and son, mother and daughter, parent and child, grandparent, grandchild, brother. Why? We're equals. We come alongside each other. There's no one that has higher authority over each other. We're not master and slave. We're not ruler and ruled. We're not even husband and wife with one another. We're brother and brother, brother and sister, sister and sister. We're equals. Equal position, equal responsibility. There is no one who is inherently more superior or inferior to the other. We have the same position before the Lord because we all have the same position in Christ. And if that's true, and it is, then Paul is saying in this, these two questions, then why do you judge? We have no right to look down on, to demean, to cast doubt on the spiritual integrity of a fellow brother, especially if he's not sinning. John Calvin said, if the Lord has ordained among us a society of brothers, equality must be observed. Anyone, therefore, who assumes the part of judge is behaving insolently, rebelliously. When we become judgmental, we have forgotten this key tenet. He's my brother. She's my sister. I have no authority to rule and condemn, but I do have a responsibility to love and to care. If that's true, then why are we so prone to being critical and judgmental? It's because in the moment of crisis, in the moment of temptation, we have forgotten verses like these. And as Marshall and Payne write in their book, The Vine Project, we simply don't value the word enough. We don't love people enough. It's a heart problem. Our hearts are not sufficiently fired by the wonder of God's mercy and the majesty of Jesus Christ, and our hearts are not sufficiently full of love and compassion for those who are around us. Oh, my brothers, let us remember our brotherhood to keep from the judgmental and critical spirit. Third principle that he gives us to keep from judgmentalism, remember God's judgment. Remember God's judgment. He says at the end of verse 10, providing a reason for, that's the reason that's going to follow. Why should we not judge? Why should we not have contempt? Because for we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. We will all stand before the judgment seat of God. I think he is speaking directly about one judgment seat and he is implying a second judgment seat. First, he is reminding us explicitly that there is a judgment for believers and he, Christ, will give rewards. Notice that in this phrase, he is reverting back from the second person plural you to the first person plural we. And so he's making this inclusive, we all, and he is including himself in that. 
Paul is not excluded from what he will say. Everyone is in this same condition. And then as if he wants to emphasize it even more, he says, we will all, we all, everyone will stand before the judgment seat of God. There is a judgment coming. There is an evaluation of what all men do, but I am not the judge. But all of us will be judged. None of us have the right to judge. All of us will be subject to judgment. Now, if you're listening carefully, you might be saying at this point, wait, 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 wait. I thought Christ took God's wrath against us for us and that we have escaped judgment. Are you saying, preacher, that that Christians, believers in Jesus Christ will be judged? Is that what you're saying? Ah, you're listening well. Yes, that's what I'm saying. In fact, again, Paul is emphatic about it. We himself included, all, no one will escape. Everyone will face judgment. What's notable here is how he talks about that judgment. Notice he says, we will stand before the judgment seat of God. That word judgment seat, it's actually one word in the Greek. It's the word bema. And it's only used twice in the New Testament. It's used here and it's used in 2 Corinthians Chapter 5. Turn there for just a moment. 2 Corinthians 5. And on your way to 2 Corinthians 5, if you happen to put your finger in 1 Corinthians 3, that would be helpful as well. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10. He uses that same word. And he fills out for us what that judgment for believers is about. We must all appear before the judgment seat, the bema, of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. So he is not talking here about trying to determine whether or not someone will go to heaven or hell. That's not the judgment. The judgment that the believer will face is the judgment for rewards. What kind of rewards will you get for your faithfulness to him, if you have done things in his power and for his glory, you've done good things well in right ways, then he says there will be reward. And if there have been poor things done, bad things done, then there will be lack of reward. Remember I said keep your finger in First Corinthians 3. That's the passage we read earlier and where Paul fills out even more details on this, right? This is, everyone has the foundation of Jesus Christ if we are in Christ. And then we build on that. We live our lives out of that relationship with Christ. And some build with gold, silver, precious stones. And they're going to be rewarded for the way that they build in honorable ways to the glory of God. Others waste their lives. They build with wood and hay and straw. And they will, they will suffer loss in that nothing they did will be rewarded. Though Paul is emphatic to say, yet they will be saved, yet so as through fire. So 
the joke always is they get into heaven, but they're singed and smoking. But they're there. But everything they've done is gone. It's all been wasted. They haven't done it for the glory of God. They've done it for the glory of self. They've had opportunities that they have wasted. They've squandered. They haven't used the gifts that God has given them in ways that honor Him. It's a wasted life. They'll be in heaven, but it's a wasted life. And there's no reward. And so Paul is reminding us that there is an evaluation coming. In fact, in the very next chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul says in verse 4, I'm conscious of nothing against myself, yet I'm not by this acquitted. In other words, I don't think, I don't know of anything that I've done that's sinful against you, but that doesn't acquit me. But the one who examines me is the Lord. Therefore, do not go passing judgment before the time, but wait for the Lord who comes who will bring who will both bring to light the things that are hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts so god will not only examine the things we do he will examine the things we do that are hidden that no one sees and he will not only examine that but he will also examine our hearts what's our motive what's our desire for what we do so paul says it'll all be open and laid bare and because of that We have one desire, and that's to do everything that is pleasing to Him. In fact, that's what He says in 2 Corinthians 5, 9, right before He talks about judgment. Therefore, we have as our ambition, whether at home, in heaven, or absent, at at home on earth, to be pleasing to Him. You want to please Him in every way. Why? Because everything is going to be evaluated. So when Paul says this in verse 10, He's reminding us of two things. There's a reward coming and we want to work for it. Is it legitimate to work for a reward from the Lord? Yes, absolutely. He gives that as a motivation. Don't waste your life. Invest yourself in the best things so that the Lord will reward that. So there is a reward coming. We want to work for it. Also, Paul uses this phrase to remind us that there is a reward coming and we don't want to lose it. We don't want to squander it. We don't want to get to heaven empty-handed, as it were. And Paul uses this coming judgment as a motive to keep us from judging others and to keep us working and laboring with our own hands so that we are right before the Lord. There's a second implied judgment also in this verse. And that is that there is a judgment of unbelievers as well. And he will be righteous in that judgment. Notice verse 11. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall give praise To God. Uh, Turn back with me to Isaiah chapter 45. That's the passage that the apostle is quoting both here and in Philippians chapter 2. Isaiah 45. The quotation comes from verse 23. In the context of what Isaiah is saying, he's speaking about Cyrus who will come to release the Jewish exiles in Babylon and he is speaking even naming Cyrus 150 years prior to Cyrus releasing the Israelites 
And in this specific passage, in this immediate context, before he gets to verse 23, in verses 20 to 22, because of the coming of Cyrus to release Israel, he is appealing to the Gentiles to repent from worshiping false idols and to turn to worship and trust in him, the true God. And he says that, calling them to be saved. Notice verse 22, turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth because I am God and there is no other. I am God and I alone stand in the heavens and I have a right to rule and reign and no one else has that right. And then he says in verse 23, I have sworn by myself, the word has gone forth from my mouth in righteousness. I will not turn back that to me every knee will bow, every tongue will swear allegiance. In other words, repent nations because there is coming a time when you will no longer have time to repent and you will be forced and compelled to bow and worship me either in heaven or on earth or on earth or in hell. And you need to repent now while you still can before you get to hell and you cannot and you realize the tragedy of not confessing me. Our Lord is making a promise, a declaration according to his own authority and position as the eternal God, the one who is alive and who has always been alive, that he has a right to judge and no one else has. The point of Isaiah and the point of Romans and the point of Philippians 2, where every, every knee will bow to the exaltation of Jesus Christ, is all the same. That repentance is needed now because God will judge. No one gets away with sin. There's no get out of jail free card with sin. He will judge. He will evaluate. He will condemn. And brother, sister, if you are here this morning and you have not trusted in Jesus Christ, I need you to understand that this text needs you to understand that there is no escape from God's judgment. It, it looks like it now. I get it. It looks like it. It feels like there's no authority over you. It feels like you're getting away with what you're getting away with, that everything is fine. There will be a day when you will stand before God, except you will not be able to stand. Psalm chapter 1, Psalm 1 rather. The wicked are not so, they are like chaff which the wind drives away. The wicked will not stand in the judgment. You won't make it. You won't pass muster. You will be judged. Brother or sister, if that is you this morning, oh, I urge you, I compel you, would you please trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior to free you from the bondage of sin and to free you from the penalty that comes from that sin. 
Remember what Paul said in Romans chapter 2, Do you think lightly of the riches of His kindness and His tolerance and His patience? Some see the kindness of God and the patience of God and the tolerance of God and say, He doesn't care. Oh, don't misunderstand. He cares infinitely. He must care because He is God. The only reason He is being kind, Romans 2.4, is that He is leading you to repentance. He's waiting. Would you repent and would you turn to him? You know, we tend to be judgmental because we're afraid that things won't be made right. We're afraid that that things will continue to go askew and awry. And these verses remind us, verses 10 and 11 remind us God's coming. He's coming as judge. We don't need to fret. It will all be handled in a righteous way. One final reminder that he gives us, it's in verse 12. To keep us from judgmentalism, remember God's grace. Verse 12 serves as something of a summary of everything that he has said in these two verses. One commentator has said, every verse in, every word in this verse is emphatic. Well, Linguistically, it's not possible to have every word be emphasized, but, but I understand what he's saying. So then, in other words, I've made these declarations about what judgment will be. There's a conclusion, and you need to think about the conclusion. There are implications for this. Each one of us, each one, emphasizes the universality of the judgment of God. Everyone will face the judgment of God. Of us makes it personal. It's not just my neighbor. It's not just my wife. It's not just my children. It's not just my father and my mother. It's not just my siblings. It's not just my friends. It's me. I will face that judgment. I will be judged. We'll give an account... That word account is a a word for record keeping. It's a financial term and it suggests that there is nothing that will escape notice. Back in the old days when you used to reconcile your checkbook, you know, you'd go through and you just on paper and you'd say, oh, I'm off a quarter or a nickel or a dollar or whatever. I'll just, you know, I'll fix it. Well, I used to do it that way. Now I use Quicken. And Quicken will not let you reconcile until you find every last penny. So annoying. No creative accounting. And there's no creative accounting with God either. He will find every last act of unrighteousness. And he will judge it righteously. Either on Christ or on the individual for all of eternity in hell. We will give an account, and then notice the last two words, to God. It reiterates that God alone is the judge. God alone is worthy to judge. Our accountability is to Him and to no one else. These statements combine to a sobering, humbling consideration for all of us. This is what we will face. He will evaluate. As you consider these verses, I want you to just turn back a page or go to the top of the page to verse 4. 
Verse 4 is what triggered all this. Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls. And he will stand. If he is your brother, if you are both in Jesus Christ, you will stand. The unbeliever will fall. He won't make it. But the believer will stand. Why? Because, notice verse 4 at the end, the Lord is able to make him stand. The Lord makes him stand on the basis of the righteousness of Christ that has been imputed to him. It's not our own worth. It's not our own work. It is that Christ has done something for us. And we will stand. This is God's grace. And if God has been so gracious to make us stand, whether we are weak or strong, should we not then also demonstrate that same grace towards others? When we are tempted to be judgmental and cultivate a critical spirit and a proud heart that looks down on others, we need to remember we have only one thing that enables us to stand before God, and that is His grace. We have nothing else but His grace. The only thing we contribute to our salvation is our sin. But when we have His grace, we have everything we need. And that will keep us from judgmentalism. Our Father, we thank You for the simple reminder of these verses. Simple but clear, important, essential. Would You make us to be those who are aware of coming judgment Would you make us to be aware that you will rightly evaluate all sinners and pour out just judgment against them? And because of that, we don't need to fret now about any wrong that we suffer from them. Likewise, Father, would you help us to remember that our own deeds will be evaluated by you. And we want the reward of heaven poured out on us. So might you stimulate us, exhort us, encourage us, help us to not be judgmental and critical of those who make different liberty choices than we do, but instead to cultivate unity and harmony as we work together, weak and strong, to the glory of Christ in whose name we pray. Amen.